You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Uh, welcome to a conversation on Trump, Putin, and Russia. I am the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies, Scott Radnitz. And to my right is Carol Williams. This has been an interesting election in the US, to say the least. One interesting aspect of it is that Russia has been a player in it, both real and imagined. And Russia has been mentioned more times in this election campaign probably than in the previous five all put together. In Russia, politicians and the media are also commenting on the American election and have a lot of interest in it. And just over the weekend, Senator Harry Reid demanded that the FBI release any information on investigations into Trump and Russia, saying, quote, that the FBI possesses explosive information about close ties and coordination between Donald Trump, his top advisors, and the Russian government. But thus far, there's been lots of speculation, some conspiracy theories, and lots of confusion about what's really going on with Trump, Putin, and Russia. So to help make sense of things, we have invited someone with years of experience reporting on Russia and who has also written about Russia and Trump. Carol J. Williams is a former senior international affairs writer for the Los Angeles Times. A foreign correspondent for 25 years, she has won five overseas press club awards, two Sigma Delta Chi citations, and was a 1993 finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in international reporting. She has served as the LA Times bureau chief in Budapest, Vienna, Moscow, Berlin, and the Caribbean. She speaks Russian, German, French, and Spanish, and is reported from more than 80 countries. She left the LA Times in 2015, a loss for them, but we're lucky to have her here in Seattle. So I'll ask her uh, some questions on this topic, and then we'll have enough time to open the floor for questions from the audience. So to start out, uh, we just want to kind of give an overview of, of some relevant information to this point. So I'll, I'll start off asking you, uh, what do you see has been the most unusual thing about Russia's role in this campaign to this point? Well, I think it's unusual that it's the Republican nominee for the presidency who is taking a more congenial and inclusive approach to relations with Russia, and that contradicts you know, decades of Republican Party policy, you know, going back to the Cold War era. Um, what motivates Trump to want to improve relations with Russia is kind of anybody's guess. I think part of this is his general campaign to discredit the Obama administration's foreign policy. He casts the reset as a failed effort to improve relations because the Obama administration went about it the wrong way. Um, his, Trump's you know, positions are starkly different from his 
recent predecessors as the Republican nominees. Romney, you know, described Russia as the most dangerous country in, you know, the U.S. foreign policy environment, and McCain is, you know, very tough on, you know, Russia and what needs to happen to to have a, a better relationship with Moscow. So, and, and these were positions that were, you know, much tougher on Russia before the serious deterioration in U.S.-Russian relations that occurred after the invasion and annexation of Crimea and the Russian support for separatists in eastern Ukraine. So, you know, for the Republican candidate to be so far on the left of this, you know, equation is definitely a departure from previous elections. Also, Russia's interest in and, and involvement in the election is unprecedented as far as we know. I mean, we don't have evidence from previous presidential campaigns that the Kremlin or its, you know, loyal hackers were getting into local databases on, you know, voter registration and, you know, the Democratic National Committee's files and email traffic and the, you know, chief of staff of Hillary Clinton's campaign's personal email archives. So there's an expression of interest that we don't have any precedent for. And, you know, what motivates the Kremlin to step up their involvement in U.S. politics is you know, one of the things we should talk about tonight. Um, it's mostly speculation, but you know, that's, that's something that's you know, clearly a difference this year from four years ago or earlier. Uh, and then also to lay a little bit more groundwork um, for some other issues that we're going to talk about tonight, what do you see uh, as the main features of Putin's Russia? as the political system in Russia since Putin has been president, especially in recent years? Well, Putin inherited a very economically divided population when he succeeded Yeltsin as leader in 2000. The economic disparities were harsh. The first decade of independence after the breakup of the Soviet Union left a lot of people unemployed. You know, there was you couldn't get a job in your field of expertise if you were in manufacturing, which, you know, there was a very large military-industrial complex, you know, automotive industries. The Russian-made equipment was a very closed system, and when the country threw off the central planning and the government funding for all of these, you know, factories that operated in the red, millions of people lost their jobs and their economic stability. So there was a lot of social tension at the time Putin became president. And he, he more than doubled the state's share in the economy in the first few years that he was leader. And that, you know, like restored jobs, not at, you know, tremendous salaries, but it did give a boost to the creation of a middle class. It brought a little bit of stability. People saw their wages go up and their living standards improve. So he gained a lot of credibility in his first administration. And one thing he failed to do, though, that's come back to haunt him, is to diversify the economy. It was still very much dependent on 
oil and gas revenues at a time when oil prices were skyrocketing. They had money to burn, but instead of investing in other industries, he used this to foster bigger state government payrolls in the provinces and in Moscow. The share of the workforce working for the government almost doubled during this first administration. So fast forward to the second attempt to come back as president, which triggered some opposition in the political forces outside of United Russia. The, the demonstrations against Putin in 2011 and 2012 were cast as you know, U.S. interference or Western interference in our political system. They blamed the protests on the American and European non-governmental organizations that were advising political parties and civic movements on how to, you know, create a more pluralistic society. So that began to discredit the American and Western involvement and you know, association with Russian political forces. And this, you know, allowed Putin to cast the events of 2014 as, you know, American provocations. The European Union Association Agreement that Putin torpedoed for Ukraine set off the Maidan revolution in Ukraine. And when that succeeded in overthrowing Yanukovych, who was Putin's loyal puppet in the um, Kiev administration, then, you know, Putin acted to seize Crimea and cast this as a necessary defense under assault from the West, that we needed to secure our military bases, which were in Crimea. We needed to defend the Russian population there against what was being portrayed as a neo-Nazi takeover of the Ukrainian government. That, in you know, succession triggered the U.S. sanctions and the European Union sanctions and, you know, set this ball, you know, snowballing in a very hostile direction. NATO and Russian warplanes have been buzzing each other over the Baltic and the Black Seas. They've been, you know, harassing warships in both of these seas. This has raised concerns that there could be an accidental collision or, you know, crash of a, a civilian aircraft because when they do these provocations, they turn off their transponders so they won't be detected by the forces that they're trying to buzz. So there's been this like escalating hostility in the last couple of years and you know it's led to a you know cease in cooperation even on nuclear nonproliferation efforts which had you know, even in the Cold War withstood the, the tensions that developed between the two countries. So we're at a pretty volatile standoff right now and I don't see, you know, anything that's going to change that dramatically in the, no matter who wins the presidential election. So now let's get to some more sensational stuff. <laughs> um, so you mentioned before that it's unusual for the Republican candidate to speak warmly about Russia. Some people have gone as far as to call their relationship a bromance. What 
has Trump said about Putin? What has Putin said about Trump? And from that, what can we infer about what they actually think about each other, if anything? Well, I think this all got started when Putin referred to Trump in answer to a question as a yarki chervek, which, you know, those who speak Russian, that means a direct translation is he's a bright fellow, but bright in, you know, yarki means bright in the visual sense, not the intellectual sense. <laughs> but Putin, or Trump's campaign has put this, you know, comment out there from the get-go and translated it as Putin saying that Trump is a brilliant man and that he's clearly the, the forerunner and you know, this in turn you know, has Trump going around saying, well, what's not to like? You know, this guy says these great things about me. You know, and it, it's a, almost like an agreement to misunderstand each other. I don't think Putin has said much about Trump since then. He's been very careful not to be seen as trying to put his thumb on the scale of the U.S. election, even though you know he might very well want to do that. He, I mean, he obviously sees in Trump an opportunity to get his way with you know, certainly the surrounding countries. <coughs> Trump has talked about, you know abandoning the commitment of the United States to protect and defend any NATO allies who are under aggression from Russia. And you know, Trump is probably, I mean, Putin is probably in need of a new nationalistic boost of the type he got after he annexed Crimea because Russians are now distracted by their economic crisis, their incomes are falling, their unemployment is rising, inflation is a serious problem, the you know, sanctions have caused a steep drop in you know, the importation of certain foods that Russians had become accustomed to seeing in their stores. So there's a little bit of social discontent right now, and Putin would love to have you know, a free hand in doing something in the Baltic states or being able to get sanctions lifted without having to give back Crimea or cease supporting the separatists in eastern Ukraine. So Trump's, you know, advocating of, you know, U.S. staying out of these little regional conflicts that involve Russia plays right into Putin's policies and preferences. So before I ask you whether Putin actually prefers uh, a Trump victory in the election. What do we know about Hillary Clinton's likely approach to Russia if she wins? I think her approach would be pretty much status quo with that of the Obama administration. Hillary was a key figure in the attempt to reset relations with Russia in the early part of Obama's administration, but she ended up taking the the hit for what the Kremlin described as U.S. interference in their presidential election in 2012 when Putin came back to power after having let Dmitry Medvedev serve in the interim so that he could come back and get like two new terms as president under the revised constitution. So Hillary is seen by the Kremlin as, you know, a tougher cookie than Trump would be. and. I think they, you know, they, they constantly 
berate her, you know, interfering in the domestic affairs of Russia, which means she's criticized their human rights policies, their, you know, branding of international non-governmental organizations as foreign agents. They, the Kremlin has sort of demonized every Western, you know, affiliation with, with Russian social and, and political groups. So I think in, they, they don't, you know, they are not eager for another Clinton presidency or, you know, what they see as an extension of the Obama presidency. But I also don't believe that they're completely comfortable with the idea of a President Trump. He's just too much of a loose cannon. I'm, I'm not sure they're confident they could control him as much as he seems to be saying things that, you know, they're on board with. Um, you know, you never know when he's going to change his direction, and he doesn't seem to be very amenable to advice from people who have more foreign policy experience. So the, uh, the narrative in the U.S., at least on the Democratic side, is that Putin has a clear preference in the race, and the preference is for Trump, and therefore he's trying to help him. But you kind of doubt that. Do you think it matters whether we're talking about Putin himself or some of the more uh, perhaps pragmatic people that surround him, like Lavrov, or maybe sure. some more the more ideological people around him, who are uh, Eurasianists, for example? Um, how do you, how do you think different um, parts of the Kremlin, such as they exist, uh, would view the likely preference? I I think they would be more comfortable with Hillary Clinton just because she is a veteran diplomat. She has, you know, decades of experience in government. She is not, you know, loved, but I think she's more predictable. And that's a very important element for most of the Kremlin more influential people. Um, I think Lavrov is probably very wary of Trump. And Trump is clearly, you know, not equal to the task of leading the the world's most powerful country. And, you know, he's disclosed so little of his personal interests in Russia. And, you know, the his affinity for Putin is so baffling to, you know, people in the United States who hold our democratic system, you know, in higher regard than, than Trump does. So I I'm not convinced that the Russians want Trump in the presidency because they know they can control him, because I'm not sure they can. Um, one, of the, uh, one of Trump's major claims, especially in the last few weeks, is that the election in America will be rigged. Uh, how do you think the Kremlin perceives that as a campaign issue in the U.S.? I think it feeds very well into the Kremlin's narrative that, you know, American democracy is a flawed system, that, you know, there should be no, you know, admiration for our system, that we've got corrupt politicians and chaos and, you know, the, the revelations from these leaked emails and documents through WikiLeaks in recent weeks shows, you know, the U.S. political system to be in crisis. You know, the, the Democratic Party, you know, the candidates are 
trying to you know do themselves in it it casts the United States as kind of a banana republic and it it helps the Kremlin put down any kind of public clamoring for democracy and pluralism and a system that looks more like ours. Uh, another interesting aspect of uh, the Trump campaign uh, is that he, he talks about Putin as much as he does. So it, even if it's the case that Trump really admires Putin, we could talk about why you think that might be. Uh, as an electoral strategy, what's to be gained by mentioning, oh, well, wouldn't it be great if we could have better relations with Russia? Wouldn't that be nice? He says at campaign rallies in uh, Ohio and, and the audience applauds, uh, which is totally contrary to any Republican candidate in recent years. Uh, so clearly Trump isn't the conventional politician who conducts focus groups to see what's going to resonate. <laughs> but even speaking from the heart, why does he think, why does he speak about this so much as if he assumes that could help him? I don't think he thinks it would help him. I think most of his followers and supporters are much more interested in his other policies. The Russian thing, you know, they, they like the wall. They like, you know, cutting, you know, keeping Muslims out of the country. They like all of these, you know, violations of constitutional order that, you know, no other politician has dared suggest. Uh, Trump has given voice to a lot of the discontented. And, you know, Russia, it's, it's just not on their radar. I think he has little to lose by including praise for Russia, or at least, you know, praise for the idea of having better relations with Russia, because, you know, it, it's just not that important to his followers. Um, I don't think it's, it's hurt him because the people who support Trump, they're not really into the foreign policy matters except to, like, exclude foreigners from the United States and put up walls between peoples. And foreign policy is rarely an important uh, factor in, in American elections anyway. But again, it raises the question of why he even bothers to talk about Russia at, at all, um, because it's so unlikely and to help, if, if not And why he rejects the interpretation of the national security director and you know, the CIA and the you know, intelligence and security institutions who have tied these leaks directly to Russian hackers. That, I mean, some of the, the intelligence officials who were briefing Trump as part of, you know, the, the information sharing they do during a campaign have come out and said, you know, how can he just, like, disregard the results of our investigations? You know, this is a troubling matter for people in charge of, you know, maintaining our national security that a guy who could be president in a couple of months doesn't take their advice. Uh, to get back to the, the question about the bromance, uh, what kind of, of qualities does Putin have that Trump might admire? From what we've seen in, in recent months in the campaign, what, what, what is the image that Putin projects and why might Trump find that attractive? I don't think Trump so much admires Putin as he envies him. Putin has a great deal. You know, he controls the media. If a newspaper or a network or a website 
reports anything that the Kremlin doesn't like, they're shut down. Their funding is withdrawn. Some loyalist from the you know, Kremlin media empire buys that you know, medium and you know, their oppositional voice is silenced. Um, Putin gets rid of his political opponents you know, with powers that Trump can only <laughs> wish he had. You know, he can put somebody under house arrest, you know, lock him up. You know, Navalny, Khodorkovsky, some of the more prominent you know, political opponents have met you know, an even more dire end. And Boris Nemtsov was assassinated in the shadow of the Kremlin a year ago. It's, you know, it's a power that, you know, no American president has had in, you know, the history of our democracy. Putin can also, you know, decide who profits and who loses. He hands out control of state enterprises and, and natural resource businesses like, you know, political perks. And, you know, he, if he decides he wants to favor one oligarch over another, he'll just put the one he's mad at under house arrest until he agrees to sell his empire and at below market value. And then he can return to his, <laughs> what he's got left of his empire. So, I mean, these are all powers that, you know, are non-existent in a democracy. But they appeal to Trump. I mean, look how often he talks about the crooked media and the, you know, corrupt politicians and the establishment. He, he's at war with our entire system. So I think, you know, having what Putin has as an omnipotent leader is very attractive to him. I also want to address the issue of foreign policy. You mentioned it briefly. Uh, another major deviation from both standing American policy and, and Republican policy in particular is his attitude toward NATO. Uh, what, what has Putin said about U.S. support for the NATO alliance? Has he been, been consistent on it? And, um, and what would be likely to happen if he were to win? I don't know that he could prevail in his very shocking statement that he wouldn't think the United States was obliged to defend the Baltic states, who, which are members of NATO, if they were attacked by Russia because they haven't paid their fair share of the alliance costs. And everything is reduced to a balance sheet with Trump. I mean, it's a business deal. If it doesn't pay the United States to maintain this you know, commitment to an alliance that has kept the peace in Europe for 70 years, you know, throw it away. It's the same thing with the Asian allies. He said that, you know, South Korea and Japan are freeloaders, that they're, you know, benefiting from the presence of U.S. forces. They actually pay a good share of the cost of maintaining those military deployments there. But, you know, all of this, and he said that, you know, they should go get their own nuclear weapons and not be dependent on the United States. These are all very stark departures from longstanding U.S. foreign policy, and I'm not sure, given how you know, even the Republican Party doesn't support a lot of what he's advocating, that he could get any significant change through Congress. 
to change the nature of the U.S. alliances. Uh, now I want to switch gears a little. Uh, another thing that has made this election so much fun is the involvement of WikiLeaks. Uh, what do we know uh, about the involvement of or the interest of WikiLeaks in the U.S. election? What do we know about WikiLeaks' ties to Russia, if any? Is it the case, as, uh, as Trump would say, there's, there's something there? I'm utterly perplexed as to what motivates WikiLeaks to be acting so blatantly on the side of Trump in our election. WikiLeaks, in its previous disclosures of classified information or you know, purloined emails or you know, diplomatic cables, they've had a veneer of you know, doing this as a public service, you know, outing government secrecy and you know, making you know, what's necessary for citizens to know about their country, public knowledge. You can't say that about their involvement in this election. It's been so one-sided. You know, every disclosure has been to the detriment of Hillary Clinton and, you know, as a result, a boost for the Trump campaign. You know, this is a leftist, anarchist organization that I, I don't see how a Trump presidency would be, you know, in their favor. And you know, it's very disturbing because you know, we don't know what's motivating this. I mean, WikiLeaks has fairly long-standing ties with the Kremlin. Um, the WikiLeaks chief counsel went to Moscow just a couple of days after Edward Snowden went to Moscow and was caught in the no man's land at Sheremetyevo airport because his passport had been revoked. And she helped negotiate his getting asylum in Moscow. We don't know, you know what from the NSA files he stole and took to Russia with him might have fallen into the hands of the Kremlin, whether any of that was conducive to the Russian hackers getting into some of the U.S. institutional email archives and you know, document archives. It's just, you know, it, it suggests very strongly on the face of it that WikiLeaks is doing this in collusion with the Kremlin. I mean, they, they're the recipients of all of these sensational, you know, leaked documents it, it goes beyond just, you know, the value of getting, like, good content as, you know, media organizations refer to, you know, stories that have a lot of public splash. It, it seems very obvious that they are working for one side in this election, and I don't know to what aim, you know. And then, well, so then that raises the, um, the issue of the, the third piece of that puzzle, the Trump campaign. Is there any evidence that there's coordination between WikiLeaks and, and the Trump campaign for the, the release uh, of the emails? Um, there could be. I certainly don't have any evidence of that. I can't imagine that I mean, if, if Trump or his 
campaign supporters were in direct collusion with the Kremlin to release this information to discredit his opponent. I mean, that's a treasonable offense. <laughs> I don't think even Trump would you know, go that far. It's, it's just unthinkable, but. Uh, okay, so then, um, so we talked about uh, personal affinities, we talked about WikiLeaks, and then so the third major issue, I think, that ties these things together is, uh, or theories about why uh, Trump might have a soft spot for Russia has to do with potential financial interests. Uh, Trump has investments in many countries, buildings with his name on it. I don't think he has any with his name on it in Russia, but there's been some talk and some evidence that he's he might have investments in Russia that might help explain his, his political preferences. So what do we know about that? I don't know of any existing investments in Russia. He's been traveling to and from Moscow for you know, 30 years. There have been attempts in the past, you know, negotiations where you know, we knew or you know, the press knew that Trump's delegation was talking with you know, casino development you know, organizations or you know, real estate development. There was a big housing boom in Russia in the 90s. But as far as the media you know, are aware, there was nothing, you know, nothing came of these negotiations. I think Trump's, you know, affinity for, you know, a better relationship with Russia is more aspirational. He thinks that there's money to be made there. And he's probably right. I mean, they still have huge unserved market for housing and virtually any consumer goods that they don't produce themselves, which is a lot. <laughs> So I, I think you know, he might see this as an untapped resource and an un, you know, an uncommitted business partner. So, um, so we covered, I think, the main conspiracy theories involving these players. So one, that Trump is secretly um, beholden to the Kremlin because he has big debts in Russia and they lord this over him. You think that's probably not true? I don't think so. I mean, I think if. He had big debts, you know, this would have been made public by the Russians you know, earlier, and, and he hasn't done anything. I don't think he's even visited Russia in recent two or three years. So the Kremlin would have had plenty of time to make an issue of this if Trump owed them money. Second conspiracy theory, uh, Trump is coordinating with Russia and WikiLeaks in order to uh, I guess time time the release of information or uh, coordinate their uh, their messaging activities around it. Some coordination between the groups. You think probably not. You can certainly speculate when you look at what's out there that there is this connection. But as I said a few minutes ago, I I can't believe any American businessman or politician would be so brazen as to collude with a foreign country that is, you know, in an adversarial relationship with us, that's under sanctions in the United States. You know, its main business figures are barred from entering the United States. You know, there's a, an embargo on contracts and, and 
any business arrangement that would benefit Russia. He'd be violating, you know, enough laws to spend the rest of his life in prison. I don't know, maybe he just doesn't think something like that would happen, but it, it seems it, it's a big leap to think that a U.S. presidential candidate would be in a treasonous relationship with, with Russia. Okay. Third conspiracy theory, uh, Trump is a, either a Manchurian candidate or maybe only a useful idiot, but is somehow being played by the Kremlin. They've done some psychological analysis. They know his weak spots. They know he's, sub, he's subject to flattery. And through the psychological techniques, they're able to manipulate him in order to advocate Russia-friendly policies. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's the one that I subscribe to. Russia has only to gain by you know, dealing with a candidate who's talking about how the U.S. shouldn't be maintaining sanctions on Russia just because of its, you know, Russia's disputes with its neighbors. You know, Trump has made it clear he's willing to look away from the annexation of Crimea, which was part of a sovereign country. He doesn't think the United States needs to be involved in or, you know, overly worried about Russia's support for the separatists in eastern Ukraine, which has kept Ukraine utterly destabilized for more than two years. He views, you know, the perceived problems in the Baltic states with the Russian minority as, you know, Russia's issue. It's not anything for the United States to worry about. And the, the fact that, you know, the Russian media make a, a big deal about, you know, the repression of Russians in Estonia and Latvia. They're, you know, denied linguistic rights, you know, on a par with the, the, na the na national languages. All of these things are cast as, you know, efforts to make second-class citizens of the Russians who have lived in the Baltic states for, you know, most of their lives in most cases which was exactly the pretext Putin used to send forces to back the separatists in eastern Ukraine. He claimed that the Russian-speaking populations were being repressed and threatened and you know, their very existence was at stake, and that justified the intervention in Ukraine's you know, separatist problem, which the Kremlin actually instigated. So. These are very worrisome signals and messages coming out of the Trump campaign that, you know, we as, you know, a, a member of NATO and, you know, a democratic country that respects the, you know, laws and treaties that followed World War II, that we would just, like, turn a blind eye to overt aggression by Russia against countries of the former Soviet Union that are now sovereign states. And I want to offer uh, a fourth quasi-conspiracy theory uh, that Hillary Clinton's campaign has conjured up claims of a conspiracy theory about Trump and Putin. There's really nothing there. They just spoke nicely of each other, but are using that issue to distract from Hillary Clinton's email problem. Well, sure. <laughs> it's a perfect 
you know, diversionary device. Um, I'm sure Hillary Clinton and her supporters are sick to death of talking about the email scandal. And, you know, if they can turn the focus to Trump and some things that he might be involved with that are, you know, less than salutary, you know, that, that works for her. And, you know, I don't think it's a terribly surprising development in this very acrimonious campaign. So then uh, it leads to the, the question, I think, um, it's probably on nobody's minds, but does any of this really matter? Um, is this just a parlor game, a diversion, so we can hold events like this uh, because it's fun to talk about and it's full of intrigue, but in fact will probably have no impact on the election? No, I don't think it's just a game. I mean, it, it has sort of entertainment value for the Russian, you know, media consumers as as it does for a lot of people in the United States but it's more of a distraction from their you know woes with you know a economy in recession you know all economic indicators are you know on the downside people's lifestyles have suffered in the last 2 years because of largely because of the drop in oil prices which has cut into government revenue, which supports, you know, the new government-run industrial empire. So people are more concerned with their own, you know, household budgets and, you know, the future of their children and, you know, the stability of the educational system than they are about, you know, the U.S. political scandals. But it does have a sort of comic, you know, relief element to it, I think, you know, certainly for the Kremlin and the dominant political forces, you know, this election makes the United States look like a joke. I mean, it, it it's degraded to such a, a level that, you know, nobody is standing up and saying, I'm proud to be an American and, you know, this is a testimony to our great system that we have these two people who are, you know, going at each other tooth and nail, and nobody knows where the country's going to end up in a week. So I, I don't dismiss it as, you know, a sideshow, but it, I don't think in the long run any of this is going to be persuasive in, you know, getting people to vote for or against Trump. I think, you know, it's, and it's completely ignored by Trump supporters. They, they just brush it off as propaganda from the other side. Um, and then maybe one last question. Based on your long experience as a reporter in Russia and other places, um, what other kinds of insights can you bring? I mean, we who access this information as, as passive observers, aren't always getting the full story. Um, is there something there? Is, if you were a reporter and, and you had access, say, to the Kremlin or the Trump campaign, are there things you'd be able to dig out that would provide uh, additional insights to what we already know? No, I think the bottom line is much more grassroots. Russians, you know, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, when I first started going there and when I was living there, they do not want war with the United States or the West. They don't want war with anybody. This whole, you know, saber-rattling episode that's transpired in the last few years is 
you know, evocative of the Cold War era when there was, you know, the constant threat of nuclear attack and, you know, one side was accusing the other of gearing up for a first strike and, you know, the Star Wars system of, you know, missile defense that got the Kremlin, you know, riled up 30 years ago. These are all kind of being revisited and it's heightened tensions. It's it's opened up real possibilities for confrontation, you know, likely of an accidental nature. If one of these warplanes from either side, you know, NATO or Russia, crashes into the warship, it's just trying to buzz and aggravate, you know, that could trigger a reaction that would be, you know, could become out of control. And, you know, the very confrontation that we all don't want could happen just because of the you know, response mechanisms that are in place and the plans for deflecting an attack. So I think, you know, it's a dangerous time. There's definitely, you know, a level of tension that hasn't existed since the Cold War. But I, I think the people, you know, in the end will kind of exercise common sense and put pressure on their leaders in both countries to avoid letting this, you know, this get out of control and let the saber rattling escalate into actual warfare. So uh, on that note, should we open things up to the people? <laughs> uh, there's a lot of st stuff out there. Uh, so uh, we'll take questions from the audience. And uh, I guess since you won't be using a microphone, please uh, project your question and speak clearly. Yes, sir. I mean, if you could stand up, please, also. It might make it easier for people in the back to hear. A couple facts uh, go with a hypothesis. Russia has moved about four divisions up on the Ukrainian border. At the same time, they have increased their air attacks in Syria. Putin has an army that he's improving, which demonstrated great ineptness in its war with Georgia truly a third-rate army. I say that from an army background. And he's prone to bluff. What's he up to? Bluffing. <laughs> no, I, these are all demonstrations of power and projections of might and, and threat. But, you know, as you said, the Russian military's performance in its more recent confrontations hasn't been impressive. The Kremlin has embarked on this extremely expensive military reconstruction program that's going to be taking place over this decade. Their economic problems have cut into that considerably in the last two years. The um, involvement in Syria, I mean, it's it's not that expensive for them. They can, you know, deploy their ships and warplanes and carry out bombing runs, and except for the couple of planes that they've lost and pilots who have been killed, and this isn't necessarily reported in the state-controlled media. You know, the cost of showing the Russian flag in the Syrian conflict is very minimal, and you know, Assad is not viewed in Russia in the same way he is outside of the country. I mean, they, the Kremlin 
casts this conflict as the West trying to impose regime change in Syria because you know they don't like the particular person who's in power there, and whether the Kremlin sees Assad as you know a, a reliable ally, I'm not sure, but they have nothing to lose by showing their willingness to intervene on behalf of an embattled leader who is fighting the good fight against Western you know, intrusion into their affairs. So in effect, is doing it for domestic reasons. Exactly. muscle. Yep. And all five foot two. Uh, <laughs> and showing off and riding horses and so on. Same kind of Bare-chested. <laughs> what if we call it bluff? How would we, we do that? Well, How would we do that? They ran a number of Russian troops with no insignias on them into Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take a whole lot of power on our part to supply, say, a brigade scattered along that area and just but beat the living tar out of them. What is it? Out of the ones who are there now, but yeah. they have the reinforcements. They, they may not have the sophisticated weaponry and the reliable training, but they've got the people, they've got the bodies to throw at it. They have, you know, two or three times the number of infantry as all of NATO. So they they can take losses. It it doesn't hurt their, you know, campaign because they're just trying to show that they can be influential there. I don't think the United States is has any appetite for a direct confrontation with the Russian army. Yes, ma'am. Please stand up. Um, I just got back from three weeks in Russia, and I have two questions. There is there is Putin paraphernalia all over the place. There are smartphone covers. There are coffee mugs. There are aprons. Is who's creating that? Because it looks to me as though someone he is creating the same kind of cult of personality that we seen in the past, particularly under Stalin. Um, and the second question is why, with the economic problems, which are very apparent when you go to visit Russia, why is he still so popular? He, in contrast to Donald Trump, has created the impression among the Russian people that he's made Russia great again. He is restoring the Soviet empire. He is recovering Moscow's clout in the world. And he, the Imperial Empire. Yes. I mean, yeah, the two-headed eagle now is the I mean, he's doing a lot of things. He's convinced, and, and Russians were very demoralized after the breakup of the Soviet Union and their tremendous economic pain that they suffered for the first decade of independence. And they don't regard democracy and pluralism as you know, a positive development, certainly not capitalism. It wasn't until Putin came to power and he reinvested in the state control of industry and the economy that people's lifestyles improved. And it wasn't just because they had a smart leader who was investing in people, it was because they were making $100 a barrel on oil sales and this was just being used at whatever the Kremlin's will was. So he was able to impress the people with his ability to you know, alleviate the economic stress, to build up the country. They, they made serious progress in the first 
decade of you know Putin and Medvedev's rule in increasing wages, employment, you know the the standard of living did measurably improve. That's what Russians want. I mean, they don't care what political color you know that comes in, and you know in, in terms of who is creating all this you know propaganda of you know pictures and cell phones and flags. I mean, I suspect a lot of that is just free enterprise. You know, people see there's a market for this kind of patriotic paraphernalia. There, you also see, you know, like the Matryoshka dolls with Putin and the other political and figures Trump. and Trump. And, Trump. Yeah. and you know, the, the, I, when I was there last year, I bought these holograms of, you know. Medvedev turning into Putin and then back to Medvedev and back to Putin. So, I mean, there's there's semi-oppositional paraphernalia being produced too, but I don't think the Kremlin worries about that. They, they have 80 percent approval ratings for Putin. That's probably a little exaggerated since the pollsters are not likely to elicit a lot of negative commentary. But it's it's high. I mean, the vast majority. Why is he so high? I mean, they are hurting. But they're hurting because they've been told the West is against them. The West is trying to supplant Putin. They're trying to, you know, put these oppositional figures in power so that they can, you know, rape and pillage through the Russian resources as they did, you know, in the the 90s and the 2000s. I think, you know, it's a message because there's not a free media there. They don't see the contrary message that you know, they're suffering because they failed to diversify their economy when they had the opportunity, and they're suffering because the Western world is sanctioning them for aggressions and territorial seizures in sovereign countries. I think I'd also add, add to that um, that um, Putin doesn't have an alternative. There's no opposition. So. A lot of the 80% approval rating is because there's simply no choice out there. In America, we have this clear choice. So that's why it's roughly 50-50. Um, so in Russia, even if people are not especially excited about Putin, the fact that there's no viable alternative there means that they often default to the default answer, which is Putin. And I've heard it said, um, which I think explains a lot that it's Putin, it's not that Putin wins elections because he's popular, Putin's popular because he wins elections. That's how things work when there's no alternative. I think you know, over here in the hat. Yeah. Um, so if you were in an advisory role, old president, in the role of president in this upcoming election, how would you handle these Russian relations? Because while you mentioned this type of thing can be meaningless, and in terms of once the election happens, it's still kind of just talk right now. I think there's a certain number of people in the U.S. who are expecting that to be addressed as soon as the president comes into power in addressing how to handle these relationships, or at least just clarify going forward what would happen. So kind of what would you would your say to I don't actually expect the Russian relationship to be the first priority of whoever wins the presidency. The status quo is likely to be maintained for the foreseeable future unless Putin dies or there's this unexpected you know revolution in Russia which I don't think 
either of us <laughs> thinks there's much chance of. You know, it's, so as long as Putin is healthy and able to, you know, walk up to a microphone, I think he's the president of Russia for, you know, the next 10 years. I don't think there's any opportunity from the Western side to improve relations short of turning a blind eye to the Crimea annexation and the intrusions in neighboring countries, which, you know, they're all invested in that position right now. They can't back off and say, okay, well, never mind, you know, we won't make an issue of the fact that you've seized, you know, significant territory from a sovereign country, because that undermines the rule of international law. I mean, there are treaties that identify the borders of the countries, you know, since the end of World War II that have been clearly violated. And, you know, the, there has to be some consequence for Russia. And if, you know, the U.S. decided, okay, well, we want to improve relations and stop all this menacing that goes on in the air and the sea and at the borders, you know, it, it's, it's not a, a fair or sustainable position to back off from, from that policy. And it's also, you know, the collective policy of, you know, the European countries and the United States and Australia and, you know, basically what is, you know, what constitutes the Western world. With all the gains, supposedly, that Putin has made in the last eight years in terms of the global environment, and, and the fact that, that with Hillary, it's anticipated that there wouldn't be much change in a lot of what's going on. Why would Putin ever want to support Donald Trump? And I presume that's what this discussion was about. I agree. I, that's why I'm not convinced that the Kremlin wants a President Trump. I think, you know, their leading foreign policy figures know that Trump is just a loose cannon. They, he, he can't be persuaded by his own people. So why would he be, you know, reliably, you know, is agreeing with the Kremlin? Thing, then? There's certain advantages for the Kremlin, especially in the short term to embrace Trump's positions regarding, you know, the regional conflicts and and the sanctions. You know, Trump has said he doesn't see why, you know, we need to maintain sanctions. It's not our business. Over here. I guess I see it the, the other way, that the status quo for, um, for Russia is not as beneficial as radical change. The status quo means we can beat the tar out of them you know, and that, and that, you know, in, in various areas, uh, they're at a disadvantage, whereas if, um, if Trump's president, and if he's a loose cannon, um, you know, you have implications in NATO, uh, you have perhaps some um, emboldening other nationalist movements in Europe, which, uh, so if, if he's feeling, if uh, Putin's feel um, encircled by NATO, uh, you can't beat them militarily. If you can break them up, you don't have to. So I'm just wondering whether, if you look at the, the balance sheet, as it were, between status quo and radical change uh, versus, you know, in NATO, in Ukraine, in Syria, in the polar region, you know, what are some of the, what are some of the, uh, how does it, uh, does that 
change your mind essentially as to whether Trump has uh, more beneficial advantages to them relative to Clinton? No, because radical change, <laughs> the word radical, you know, implies that it's uncontrollable and it's unpredictable. And Russia doesn't want an unpredictable future relationship with the West any more than the West wants an unpredictable future with Russia. And it, even though we could, you know, beat the tar out of the Russian forces if we took them on, there are some, you know, embedded realities that have to be considered. Um, the RAND Corporation last year did a very elaborate study on readiness between the NATO forces and the Russian forces in the Baltic area. And they've calculated that by the time NATO could scramble its first reaction force to go and defend the NATO allies in the Baltics, the Kremlin troops would already have taken over the capitals of those countries. They just have the manpower and the mobility to act much more swiftly than NATO has the ability to react. You know, that's why they've, NATO has ordered the deployment of these 4,000 troops to the Baltic states and Poland. But you know, this is something that's not going to happen for years. You know, it's a very phased buildup. Part of it, I think, is you know aimed at trying to provoke the Kremlin and you know get them to come to some agreement to stand down or to you know cease the aerial provocations. But you know there, there's you know the fact that we have more forces and could you know deploy them and eventually prevail, and then there's the reality of do we want to expend the lives of thousands of U.S. and Western soldiers in a conflict with Russia in order to kind of show them that <laughs> that we can prevail. I, I don't think our country, number one, is ready to do that. I would just add to that, <clears throat> I think the calculation for Russia is similar to the calculation of a potential Trump supporter, in that nobody's really sure what they're going to get. It's a roll of the dice. Things could get a little better, or things could get a lot worse. Even a lot of Trump supporters say they don't really believe a lot of the promises that he's made. They don't really think he's going to build a wall, but they want to take their chances. That'll shake things up and bring something different. So the real question is how dissatisfied someone is with the status quo. If you're really dissatisfied with the status quo, you'll take that risk and roll the dice. If you're mildly dissatisfied with the status quo, you might not take that risk and you'll stick with something more dependable. But we're not electing a king. Well. <laughs> <laughs> First time ever. <laughs> um, Greg. Yeah, hi, my name is Greg Strax. I'm a PhD student here. And it just, I, I study Russian-Chinese relations. And uh, I was born in Russia. And so I've seen sort of the development of the Russian stories from the 90s into the 2000s. And I just read an interesting piece by Daniel Dresden, who just came back from the Valdai Club mm -hmm. uh, meeting uh, in, I think it was in Sochi. So there's now, the relationship has ossified. Both the Russians and the Americans have their own parallel story about why things have failed. And you know the Russians don't have a third-rate army. They have a pretty good army. Um, and a 
you know, there's been talk if Hillary Clinton is elected that it's an act of war. I don't know who said. I don't remember exactly the the Russian political uh, leader who said that, but that just came out last week. Do you believe that there could be an actual proxy war between Russia and the United States under the Clinton administration? No, I think that was Zhirinovsky, wasn't it? Who was Yeah. Zhirinovsky or Kiselyov, right? Those are two provocateurs. Oh, actually, maybe it was Kiselyov. No, I think it was Zhirinovsky. I mean, he. He's a useful idiot for the Kremlin, <laughs> but um, I, I don't see that. I, I don't think either society wants that, and I don't think either leadership wants that either. Dana. Earlier you said something about motivation, about what the motivation is here, and you said you could speculate on it. So I'd like you to speculate, given especially since you're suggesting that Trump really isn't all that interested in, uh, and the Russians aren't all that interested in having Trump elected. So what's the motivation for doing the WikiLeaks? And, and is it to undermine Hillary? Is it to uh, that's what I, I'm totally baffled by what WikiLeaks gets out of this. I mean, they have inherited this treasure trove of embarrassing, spectacular, bombshell, you know, disclosures, but how does that, you know, move society forward? I mean, in the past, their disclosures have been justified as, you know, the public has a right to know this. They have, to, they have a right to know what these diplomatic cables contained, you know, in the name of the, you know, U.S. government. You, you don't see that in the disclosures that WikiLeaks is you know, putting out in the course of the U.S. presidential campaign. It's totally one-sided. It's ignoring what would be, you know, things of interest from the, the Trump campaign and, you know, Trump's dealings. And for, you know, the motivation, I, I just don't understand. I mean, other than it gets their name out there, you know, keeps them in the spotlight as, you know, a force to be reckoned with. You know, he, he's a tactician. He likes to keep his options open. I'm not sure Putin even knows himself why he is interested in, you know, discrediting Hillary and putting, you know, Trump up higher in the, the contest. But, you know, until the election happens, you know, if, he, if Trump does win, then he's got a, a seemingly loyal figure in the U.S. leadership, and maybe he can do something with that. I just think, you know, on a collective level, Russian diplomacy and government does not desire this chaotic, you know, situation with the, you know, relationship with the U.S. presidency. They, they don't know what to expect of Trump. What he says sounds good. A lot of it, you know, comports with their aims for change in the region. But, you know, Trump is just, you know, an unreliable and an unpredictable force. I think another motivation might be something you alluded to earlier, which is that it's not so much about preferring one candidate, but making a statement about elections and about democracy. There's a discourse in Russia about democracy, which is that it's hypocritical Elections everywhere are rigged. Um, everyone's out for themselves. 
And by relativizing the nature of the system that we, we hold so dear, it makes it easier to justify the nature of, of the system at home. So to the extent that, again, it, um, it exposes some of the messiness of democracy, and it is a messy system, uh, it, it puts things in, in more relative terms, right, and, uh, and makes people rethink things that they might have assumed were true. And they don't say it this way, but it's like, see, you know, we're not the only ones who have a mess of a political right. system. Right, right. George. Uh, the foreign agent law in Russia is sort of a barometer of paranoia. And um, uh, think about two or three weeks ago, or well back anyway, they put the Lavada Center on the list. And which seems to me is sort of a red line for them because uh, they are not wanting to get certain opinions out into the papers and into the media. For Thursday. And I read, the, I read this morning or yesterday that uh, uh, there was a poll out that 50% level of um, Russians are afraid that Syria is going to turn into World War III. And does he listen to, do you think he might listen to public opinion enough to see that as a restraint on his actions? Or other, other than that, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have concerns about Levada Center, I would think. In other words, will public opinion in Russia constrain his aggressions? Do people in the back hear that? I don't think so. I mean, the, by letting the Levada Center operate relatively autonomously for these past years when all other media and you know opinion research firms were pretty much under the Kremlin's thumb created the appearance of you know openness and and you know allowing contradictory voices to be heard i don't know what it was that provoked the Kremlin to add the foreign agent label to Levada Center it doesn't seem to have constrained them much yet I don't know if that's because you know the legislation has got you know, some time <laughs> elements to it, but you know I, I continue to see reports from the Levada Center that are pretty you know open and balanced. So I don't know that the Kremlin heeds any of what they report, other than to try to you know knock down anything that's negative. George. I was wondering about um, what you might speculate or think about the, the possible actions Russia could take if there was a military confrontation. <clears throat> uh, certainly there's a lot of pressure in the United States and elsewhere to have a no-fly zone in Syria. And the I guess, mean a high probability of killing Russian technology, tech, technicians or military and all the support and so forth, and alone airplanes. So suppose that happens. How would Putin be willing to climb down without doing something in exchange, and what would be the something? I can't see him just saying, well, you guys are bad players, okay? And we were here to build the anti, blah, 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 and just let it go. 
or would he let it go? I think he has the potential to make, you know, wild swings in his policy and actions. If you remember, you know, shortly after intervening in Syria last September, or September 2015, there was a very intense bombing campaign for about a month, and then they announced that, well, our work is done here, and we're withdrawing our forces. I mean, that kind of caught everybody by surprise, and they didn't actually withdraw much, and whatever they withdrew, they were all back there within a few weeks. Again, because Putin is not beholden to a public guarded by a vigilant free press. He can cast his moves any way he wants. The Russian people don't have to know that you know, he's capitulated if he were to be persuaded that it's not worth going you know, head to head with the US military or you know, NATO warplanes if there were to be a, a no-fly zone imposed in Syria. So, you know, if it's disastrous, you know, the public doesn't need to know about that. I mean, in the same way that the Soviet media completely squelched the, you know, news of the losses in Afghanistan in the 1980s, the public only knew about, you know, their soldiers being killed when they came home in a body bag. And that was just like, you know, the family of the fallen soldier knew about it, but, you know, the rest of the country didn't. I mean, the costs of that intervention and occupation weren't, you know, public knowledge until after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So just to put a point on that then, it could probably bluff. Hillary could call it. She can set up a no-fly zone. If she's confident that it would call his bluff. That's an act of war. Yeah. Right. We will, uh, no-fly zone's an yeah. act of war. Yeah. And it will require tremendous Air Force resources. We can yeah. do it. But, but we won't. you've got to expect losses. <laughs> yeah. And you've got to expect reaction. And we don't take war seriously in that sense nowadays. Right. It's totally different since Vietnam. We're very gun-shy. Shrub got us in a war we never should have been in. And we paid for it right now. That's a right. Bush. Oh, yeah, Shrub is Bush. <laughs> <laughs> is there, Too are there small any, to be a Bush. Are there any students who want to ask questions? No, I just want to do a question. You're a student. Do they appeal of Putin to, I mean, of Trump to Putin? And some of the Russian journalists are actually arguing that since everything, um, a lot of things, are done um, as a deal in Russia, it's done as a personal deal. Uh, in this case, Putin is looking at this person who is a possibility of doing a personal deal. He is known as a deal maker. So, what do you think of that take on such an appeal of this man versus the part of the system which Hillary is obviously? I think that's a very big part of it. I think both Putin and Trump see in the other, you know, somebody I can do business with, you know, and to each other's you know, mutual benefit. So, you know, that's part of it. And I think, you know, what prevents that from being pursued is all of the consequent <laughs> spillover and, and potential pitfalls of basing the relationship solely on economic benefit. You, you hope Congress has some say. 
so I, I think you had a question. Can you, can you stand up, please? So oh, yeah. Um, you know, befitting the Ellison Center, I see a lot of attempt for deep analysis of motivation and, and balance of force. And, and, but what I am actually hearing is there's a great deal more signal, uh, more noise than signal. You have no, you know, provocations, but mm -hmm. not war. You have a couple of leaders who need to say things to keep a base at home, not necessarily particularly in pursuit of a message, but to keep the, the base on for, uh, at home. Um, it looks much more dangerous because it's random than because there are forces of strategy that are about to mesh. Is that a, can you comment on that? It, it looks like the issue is we've got people who are just randomly saying things. WikiLeaks may just be releasing it because they have it. The hackers may be doing it yeah. because they, those systems were weak. You know, you never know. Trump may have better security. Uh, you, you, it's quite possible, right, that you just had badly organized servers. Or so. Trump's emails are boring, and he's an open book, so you don't need anything But anyway, that, that, it seems like actually a very scary circumstance. Right. I wonder if you No, I think that's a good point, because neither Putin nor Trump is a strategic thinker. And Putin flies by the seat of his pants. He's been successful in deciding what needs to be done right now to achieve this aim, but he's not thinking out months or years. So, and certainly Trump, I don't think, has a very detailed strategic plan on the security front. Keeping it quiet. <laughs> so I, I think that's a, a big part of it, is that, you know, these are just, you know, moves and tactical maneuverings. So I have time for a few more questions. I'm going to give priority to students or people who look like students first. <laughs> Matt, you look like a student. Um, so you're saying that um, the Democratic campaign has been using Russia and dropping, the, dropping Putin's name um, more so than like Republicans have been doing in the past, right? And I find that interesting. It seems that uh, um, Hillary and the, the Democrats have been using uh, Putin as, sort of, uh, as a means of what they, like ideology, sorry, coming out right. Um, when it comes to internal politics and international politics, Hillary is dropping Putin's name as sort of a way to, to cope with what she, when it comes to the hackings and when it comes to um, what's going on in Syria, it, uh, does, uh, it just seems to be like noise to me. I don't think there really is Russia is really an enemy to the United States in any sort of uh, in a realistic way, and um, basically, does it seem, does it seem that uh, America needs to have like this ideological enemy to serve like the campaign rather than serve people's interests? So is it just is it campaign rhetoric, or the, the, does do Hillary's words really reflect uh, a deeper foreign policy idea? I think Hillary is especially of late filling that void left by the Republicans, you know, abandonment of Russia as an issue in the campaign. You know, the little that Trump talks about it, it's always about, oh, well, why shouldn't we get along with Russia? Why shouldn't we put all this, you know, animosity behind us? Hillary is forced to say, hey, look, <laughs> this is a country that has been identified as, you know, the greatest threat to our national security, to NATO's, you know, persisted you know, persistence in you know defending the peace in Europe somebody has to raise the you know 
answer to Trump's question, why shouldn't we have a better relationship with Russia? And I think you know, Hillary is saying because you know, they don't respect their neighbors' sovereignty, they are provoking our troops and forces in the region, they're you know, a force for instability on the continent. It's ironic because this is usually the Republicans' message, and the Democrats are, you know, to the left of that. So I, I think, you know, and it's also a very handy method of diverting attention from her particular problems with the the Russian behavior in this election. So, you know, it's over here. Is it true that uh, Putin has a PhD in political science? And a PhD in economics. Someone told me that. Yes, in, in economics, PhD in economics. Is that something he's acquired since he's been president? Is like an honorary degree, or I, I didn't think he went before. to. I think it happened in the 1990s. And some maybe, work. yeah, when he worked with Subchak. Yeah. Well, PhDs don't make good presidents, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure of the implication of the question. Uh, he, he's accused of plagiarizing a lot of his dissertation that's been written about a bit. Um, that would not be surprising for a KGB like Colonel. A lot of prominent Russians, and not only Russians, have uh, phony diplomas, phony PhDs, and, and other degrees. A lot it of wouldn't Americans. Be, be, <laughs> right. It wouldn't be that surprising. Uh, and then, student yeah, student in the back. There you go. You're the last one. Uh, what did the As I said earlier, I think the Russian public is too distracted by their own domestic problems, mostly economic, to pay much attention to the U.S. election aside from its kind of comic relief. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think because the Kremlin hasn't come out and publicly stated, oh, wouldn't it be great if Donald Trump got elected president, they certainly aren't advocating for Hillary. So you know, I think most people can kind of read between the lines and see that you know, the Kremlin is taking measures to help Trump, but that, as I said, might just be to keep their options open if he does become president. And on that note, we'll wrap up. Uh, thank you all for coming. Seven days till Election Day, and this will all be over. Have <laughs> me enjoy. Thank Kara Williams for appearing with us today. Thank you.